The Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 72. We'll look at verses 1 through 4 and also 12 through 14. That is Psalm 72 beginning in verse 1. And the New Testament reading and the sermon text for today is Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word. Psalm 72 verse 1, here we find a psalm written by Solomon and it has to do with uh, the, the role and the job that a king was to, to have within Israel. And it's a prayer uh, that God would give the king what he needs to rule well. Of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills and righteousness May he defend the cause of the poor and of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. This was the prayer of Solomon that the Lord would give him strength to rule well. And ultimately this psalm has to do with Christ who does these things perfectly, always, and from generation to generation. Let us go now to Acts chapter 6 and look at verses 1 through 7, the sermon text for today. There we read, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists, the Greeks, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it now and our application of it to our lives today. Back in August, uh, Lindsay and I moved our family to a new house, uh, which is in fact a very old house. It was built in the year 1915. Uh, One of our main concerns when we were looking at that old house and while we were considering whether or not we should make the move uh, was the condition given its age. And it looked really good on the surface, but the question that was nagging us was, what is lurking beneath? Uh, What problems are there that we uh, do not see? That is what we wondered. And I think you would have the same concerns if you were looking at a house And considering to purchase it if it was built over a hundred years ago. And and that question did nag us a bit until we were able to look carefully at the house with the home inspector. I actually got under the house with him, uh, got up in the attic also and looked as closely as I possibly could to see is this thing really in good condition. Uh, We looked carefully at the roof. 
the condition of the eaves, and so on and so forth. And, and the house wasn't perfect, but we found that it was really, really straight and clean, and so we made the move. But here is my question. Why are some houses that were built 100 years ago dilapidated today, whereas others are still in very good shape? Uh, what differentiates between the old house that has deteriorated and the one that has stood the test of time? Uh, three things come to mind. Uh, first, the quality and craftsmanship of the original construction matters. Uh, was the house well built in the first place? Was it set down upon a solid foundation? And so on. Uh, that obviously will make a difference as to whether or not that home will be able to stand the test of time. Secondly, the providence of God matters. Uh, even a very well-built home will not necessarily stand the test of time if some calamity strikes it. I'm thinking here of wildfire or uh, a severe flood or something like that. The providence of God obviously matters. And thirdly, maintenance matters. And, and this is really the thing that I would like to focus upon this morning if a house is to stand the test of time, it must be well maintained. The ordinary forces of nature will, in the process of time, bring even a well-built house to the ground if it is not maintained. Common things like rain and wind and the fluctuation of temperature will wear out even a good roof. And if the roof leaks, the water will rot the wood. And if the wood rots, the force of gravity will begin to have its effect upon the structure. And if all of that goes unchecked over a period of time, the house will eventually crumble to the ground. This is simply how the world in which we live works. Uh, nature is constantly trying to break everything down. Maintenance is required. And I'm not going to bore you anymore with talk of home maintenance. You're probably not too interested in that this morning but the point that I am making is this, if a structure is to stand the test of time, it must be first of all well built, and secondly, it must be well maintained. Even the best of structures, if not maintained, will deteriorate with the passing of time. So, so what does this have to do with our sermon text today, you're wondering? Well, not only are solid foundations and proper maintenance necessary for the preservation of houses and other physical things, they are also necessary for the preservation of human institutions. Your marriage, for example, will not hold up very well to the test of time if it is not set down upon a solid foundation, namely Christ and His Word, and if it is not maintained. The institution of marriage must be maintained. You must keep the marriage healthy and pure. You must invest into it if you hope to see it last and better yet improve with the passing of time. The same may be said of your business ventures and partnerships your friendships, your own spiritual life. Uh, these non-physical entities share this in common with physical things. If they are to stand the test of time, and if they are to improve with the passing of years, they must first of all be set upon a solid footing, and they must be carefully maintained. And brothers and sisters, the church is no exception. And no, of course, I'm not referring to the church building here. Uh, yes, it is true, if we ever have one of those things, we will need to maintain it. Someone is going to have to paint the eaves from time to time. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the church, the local church. That is, the church as an institution consisting of officers and members governed by the Word of God and bound together by the blood of Christ through faith in His name. The local church is an institution, and if a church, a local church or congregation, if you rather, hopes to stand the test of time, it must first of all be set down upon a solid foundation. It must be 
formed according to the command of Christ and the teaching of Holy Scripture, which is the Word of God. And then, after that, it must be carefully maintained. I suppose it is actually possible for a church with solid foundations, which is also carefully maintained, to dissolve. I think that is possible. Uh, Perhaps intense persecution could bring it down. Perhaps a particularly intense attack from the evil one could do it. Perhaps in the providence of God, it simply is His will that a church be dispersed, most likely so that more might be formed. But more often than not, churches, even good churches with good foundations, fall because they are not maintained. So I could hear you saying it now. I know what needs to be done to maintain a house. At least I have some idea of that. Cleaning, painting, weeding, caulking, roof repair, bug and rodent repellent control, etc., etc. But how is the church as an institution to be maintained? And I really bet you know the answer if you were to put some thought to it. The work is not physical, but it is spiritual. It is intellectual. It is relational. And if the threats to a house are wind and rain, the sun and gravity, the fluctuation of temperatures and the moving earth, the threats to the church are sin, false teaching, a lack of love and concern for one another, unresolved conflict, disorderliness, prejudice, gossip and slander, favoritism, unfaithfulness, disbelief, and the like. These are the forces, these are the destructive forces that must be confronted and opposed in the constant maintenance of Christ's church. And brothers and sisters, church maintenance is hard work. It's very hard work. It requires diligence. And both officers and members have a role to play in the maintenance of Christ's church. The elders and deacons of the church have a particular obligation to maintain the church, but the members of the church are also responsible to do their part. I want you to listen very carefully to the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Ephesus. And I want you to notice that he is here writing to the church in Ephesus as a whole, and not just to the pastor or to the elders. He does sometimes write to just a pastor. First and Second Timothy and Titus are epistles written to pastors of churches. But here, Paul is addressing the church in Ephesus. That is, this institution consisting of officers and members Together. Notice his words in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he was in prison when writing this, urge you, the church in Ephesus, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In the bond of peace, and then a little bit later in that same chapter, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, 
speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you hear uh, Paul's exhortation to the church in Ephesus here? He is urging the church to maintain itself. He is urging the church, every member and every officer, to do their part so that the church might be built up in love. Elders have a particular responsibility to maintain the church. According to this text, the work of elders, pastors, and teachers is to equip the saints. This is their ministry. This is their task. This is their work. Elders, pastors, teachers, equip the saints for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith, so on and so forth. The, the elders have this role to play. They are to equip the saints. This is their ministry. They are to build up the church. And if we were to take into consideration the teaching of the rest of Scripture, we would see that elders are to minister as overseers. They are um, presbyters. They are shepherds. They are to preach the word. They are to be ready in season and out of season to reprove, to rebuke, to exhort with complete patience and teaching. I could list text after text which speak to the role that elders are to play within the maintenance of Christ's church in general. Elders are to take the lead in the maintenance of the church. But notice that in Ephesians 4, this passage that we have just read, Paul's exhortation again is to the church as a whole. Every member has an obligation to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And every member is to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This command is given not to elders only, but to every member of the church. Every member has a responsibility to maintain the church, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. Every member is to be humble. Every member is to be gentle and patient as they live in the context of the local church. They are to bear with one another in love. And notice they are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This, this word that is translated in our English Bible, eager, here in Ephesians 4, 3, means to do something with intense effort and motivation. It means to work hard, to do one's best, to endeavor and so every member of the church is to work hard at this. They're to do one's best. They're to endeavor to maintain something. Uh, the word maintain here means to guard something, to watch over it so as to cause it to continue. And what is it that we are to maintain according to Ephesians 4? The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is referring to the unity that to, is to exist within the local church we are bound together through faith in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Not only should the elders of the church work hard to maintain unity within the church, it is also the responsibility of every member. But here is the point that I would really like to make this morning, the one that I am getting to. Deacons have a particular role to play in the maintenance of Christ's church. All members are responsible to maintain the Lord's spiritual house, the elders have a particular responsibility to lead in the maintenance of the Lord's house as ministers or servants. And the same is true of deacons. Deacons have a particular role to play. They are to serve within Christ's church in order to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. In Acts chapter 6, which is our sermon text for today and not Ephesians 4, uh, we have an account of the ordination of the first deacons. They are not called by that name in this passage, but it is clear that that's what they were. Uh, These seven who are listed were the very first to be appointed to the office of deacon in the early church. And I want you to consider three things in support of this claim that these were the first deacons. First, notice that the word deacon means servant, and that is what these men were called to do. They were appointed to the task of serving. Their duty was to serve. In the Greek, the word is diakoneo. Can you hear it there? This was their job. This is the verb here. They were to serve diakoneo in the early church. These are deacons. In verse 2 and 3, this is made clear. In the 12, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve diakoneo tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men whom we will appoint to this duty, that is, to the duty of service. Secondly, Notice that these men had to meet certain qualifications, even in Acts chapter 6. We see that this is true. In verse 3, we learn that these were to be men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And so there are some qualifications given here. Not just anyone can do this, not just any Christian, but these men have to be of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Uh, They would be appointed to this duty. It appears, therefore, that this was an office that they were being appointed to. In Paul's letter to Timothy, which was written years later, we find a more detailed and exact description of the qualifications that men must meet in order to be appointed the office of deacon. Paul there elaborated on the general qualifications that are mentioned here in Acts 6. Men must be of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. When he says in 1 Timothy, deacons likewise must be dignified not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves blameless, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So these are not different qualifications than the ones set forth in in Acts chapter 6, but they are a more detailed list of the qualifications. Here we have an elaboration of what was said first in Acts chapter 6 by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 8 through 13, which I have just read. Thirdly, notice that the seven men in Acts 6 were formally ordained. Notice that they were selected by the church at the direction of the apostles. It was the apostles who said to the church there in Jerusalem, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. The apostles took the initiative and said, We have this need. You, church, choose these men. Nominate them to this office. Notice that the whole church was involved in the selection of these men. Verse 5, And what they said, that is what the apostles said, what they suggested, pleased the whole gathering. And they chose the seven men. And then finally, see that the seven were presented back to the apostles for formal ordination. 
they were appointed ultimately by the apostles to this task once the church had selected them. Verse 6, these, the seven, they, the church, uh, set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, Acts chapter 6, verse 6 says. This means that the apostles ordained and or appointed these men to function as deacons. We have a very brief mention of the installation ceremony of these seven men. The apostles laid their hands on them, prayed for them, and appointed them to this task. And so here in Acts chapter 6, we find an account of the ordination of the first deacons. And I would like for you to pay careful attention to the occasion for the ordination of these deacons in Acts chapter 6. What was the occasion? What was the situation that that prompted this, this move? In verse 1 we read, Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This was the situation or occasion that necessitated the appointment of the very first deacons in the church. Notice that the early church was experiencing division. The church was being threatened by significant division. Something very terrible was happening, and it really was a scandalous thing that was going on. Favoritism was being shown to the widows in the church who were Jewish by ethnicity, while the Gentiles, they were being neglected. And so the church had widows in their midst. They were all in in need. Uh, To be a widow is always a difficult thing. Perhaps it was even more difficult in the first century A.D. than it is today. And it was probably especially difficult for those widows who identified as followers of Christ. Uh, Jew and Gentile Christians would have been probably in some way cut off from their culture to one degree or another due to their professed faith in Christ. So those support systems that would have normally been there for them as widows perhaps were, were dried up a bit because they had identified with Christ Jesus. The, the Jews who were non-believing perhaps distanced themselves from the Jews who were believing and also amongst the Gentiles perhaps those who were believing were ostracized from the community of which they once were a part. And so how important it was in those early days for the church to step up and to care for the widows who were in their midst. The scriptures often speak of the importance of caring for the poor and the downtrodden, particularly widows. This is why I read that text from the Psalms earlier where there Solomon is praying to God, God, help me to do well in this area as king. Did you hear how many times the word needy was repeated in that psalm? Help me to care for the needy, to distribute justice, to do right in this regard. Uh, Remember the words of James, the apostle, when he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It is interesting to note that James was an apostle very much identified with the church in Jerusalem. He was probably here dealing with this problem as it arose in the very earliest days of the church where some of the widows were being neglected. And here then he writes his epistle and we read the words, you want to know what true religion looks like? It's this, to take care of the needy in your midst. We have to live out our faith. It has to be displayed and put to practice. And also we are to live holy before the Lord, James says. And the early church was failing at this. 
Not only were they failing to care for widows, which would have been bad enough, but they were actually showing favoritism to a particular class of people. Think of how severely the church was being threatened, therefore, in these early days. Many Jews were coming to the faith, but something else extraordinary was going on. The gospel was being preached also to the Gentiles, and they were coming to faith as well. And so here you have, uh, for the first time, united within the church, Jews and Gentiles. What a marvelous thing this must have been. But do you see that the unity of the church was almost immediately threatened because favoritism was being shown to the Jewish widows, whereas the Gentile Greek Roman widows were being neglected. I simply want you to notice this, that the appointment of the deacons was to meet this problem. It was to deal with this threat that was coming against the church. The unity of the church was being threatened by this situation. The same James who urged us to care for widows and orphans in their distress also said this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And again, I cannot help but wonder if James did not have this incident in mind when he wrote these words. Show no partiality. Do, do not show favoritism to one class of people over another. And again, he said later in his epistle, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Again, what does it mean to show partiality? It means to show favoritism, to have bias in favor of one person over another for whatever reason. And that is precisely what was going on in the early days of the church, or at least that was the perception. It was truly a scandalous thing. Please recognize, therefore, that the first deacons were appointed not to do menial and insignificant work, but to do work that was crucial to the well-being and maintenance of the Church of Christ. Their task would require wisdom. It would require discernment. And the effect of their work would be that individual Christians would be cared for and the unity of the church would be maintained. Notice also that the work of the deacon is meant to, com to, to complement and even support the work of elders. Notice in verse 3 of Acts 6, we hear the apostles saying, Again, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The apostles, who were also elders, by the way, had as their task the ministry of the Word and prayer. They were to devote themselves to the study, preaching, teaching, and in the case of the apostles, even the writing of Holy Scriptures. It is not that waiting on tables was below them. After all, Christ Himself commanded His disciples to do likewise when He clothed Himself with the garb of a servant and washed their feet. The task of serving tables was not below them, but it was too heavy of a burden for them to bear all on their own. It would have taken them from the work that God had given them specifically to do, namely to the work of prayer and to the ministry of the Word and to the general oversight of the church. Um, elders in the church today are not apostles, but they do have a similar task to accomplish Elders do not write Scripture as the apostles did. They do not speak with the same authority as the apostles did. 
but they are to devote themselves to the ministry of the Word, to prayer, and to the oversight of the church. The ministry of the deacon, therefore, complements and supports the work of the elder. So what was the occasion for the ordination of deacons in the early days of the church? Well, again, the unity of the church was threatened due to a failure to justly care for those in need and an apostleship that could neither nor should they have met all of that need on their own. What, therefore, are the obligations of the deacon? What is their job? What is their task? Uh, The form that we will use later in this worship service in the ordination of two deacons today puts it this way. The duties of deacons consist of encouraging members of the church to provide for those who are in want, for those who are in need, seeking to prevent poverty, making discreet and cheerful distribution to the needy, praying with the distressed, and reminding them of the consolations of Holy Scripture. I think this is a wonderful summary of what the Scriptures teach the job of the deacon is. And I want to consider these words carefully, bit by bit. The duties of deacons consist of encouraging members of the church to provide for those who are in want, for those who are in need. And I want you to notice this. The job of the deacon is not to meet all of the needs themselves, but to be sure that the needs within the church are met by the members of the church. It's their job to oversee the benevolence ministry of the church. So pay special attention to that emphasis here. The deacons are to prevent poverty, this form of ordination says. This is a very general statement and fulfilling it could involve many things. Uh, Perhaps the deacons need to distribute food or clothing or money to those in need. Perhaps they will need to help in other practical ways coming alongside individuals to help them secure good employment or to help them learn to manage their resources well. All of this might fall under the responsibility of the diaconate. Deacons, we are told, are also to make discreet and cheerful distribution to the needy. The word discreet here means that we don't need to make a show of it in the church, do we? It's okay for these things to be done very quietly. But our deacons will work in cooperation with the elders to distribute from the Benevolence Fund of the Church. Um, By the way, the Benevolence Fund used to be called the Deacon's Fund. When we first began, it was called the Deacon's Fund. Uh, At the church that we came out of all those years ago, it was called the Deacon's Fund. Um, And when we first started, it was called the Deacon's Fund. But if you remember, there were no deacons at our previous church. And we did not have deacons when we first began, and so we thought it sounded rather silly to call it the deacons fund when there were no deacons (laughs) in the church at that time. And so we said, let's call it the benevolence fund. The word benevolence means kindness. I'm not saying we're going to change the name back. I'm not sure if we will. We haven't had that discussion. Uh, But whatever the name, uh, please understand that the deacons have a particular responsibility to, under the authority of the elders, maintain and distribute the funds uh, that are in that fund, the Benevolence Fund or the Deacon Fund, whatever we end up calling it. And again, I will say this, though I made this announcement earlier, if you are able to give above and beyond your normal tithe, we would encourage you to consider giving to the Benevolence Fund of the church. Um, Distributions, you need to understand this, are made discreetly from this fund on a regular basis. That money is put to good use. 
and it will be the job of the deacons to oversee this fund. Lastly, uh, see that deacons are to pray with the distressed, and they are to remind them of the consolations of Holy Scripture. And so I hope you can see very clearly that the deacons are not the janitors of the church, right? They are not that. They might serve in that capacity, but they are much more than that. They are ministers of mercy. They are to care for people. Ultimately, that is their job. Their job is not to care for buildings. Their job is to perhaps do that with the end goal being caring for for people, you see. Um, Particularly, they are to care for them as it pertains to physical needs. They are to care for them as brothers and sisters in Christ. The job of the deacon is to see to it that no one in our congregation has the joy of their salvation diminished due to physical poverty or suffering so far as we can help it. That is a very important task that these deacons fulfill. Later in the service, we will ordain two new deacons, uh, thanks be to God. Uh, Each of our deacons will have particular responsibilities. Uh, One will oversee the food ministry that was mentioned earlier, Tom Evans. Uh, Another will oversee the setup and teardown of this church facility each Lord's Day, Nick Muselli. Another will organize meals for those who have had surgery. Actually, that too will be Nick Muselli. Uh, one will serve as an administrative assistant to the pastors, Mike TZA. Another will provide fellowship meals for the church on a regular basis. That's Dave Anity. But all of them have the same general calling. And it is the one that has been described to you uh, above. They, they are to labor to maintain the unity of the church by encouraging members of the church to provide for those who are in need, seeking to prevent poverty, making discreet and cheerful distributions to the needy, praying with the distressed and reminding them of the consolations of Holy Scripture. The office of deacon, brothers and sisters, is a very important office to the church. And so how might we apply these truths that you have just been exposed to? First, I would exhort you to give thanks to Christ that He would care for His people in this way. See that Christ is concerned to care for His people, both body and soul. Do you see that? How it is reflected and manifested in the church? When Christ came, did He heal those who were physically blind? He did. Did He cause those who were lame to walk? Was He concerned to care for those who were physically hungry and physically thirsty? Of course He was. He did all of those things. Ultimately, we know that those things have a spiritual counterpart. They correspond to physical realities. His his ultimate goal was to to make those who were spiritually blind to see, those who were spiritually deaf to hear, those who were spiritually thirsty. He would meet that need of theirs. Uh, Indeed, Christ came to save us, body and soul, and He is concerned to care for us in body and And in soul. It is no wonder, therefore, that this concern of Christ is reflected in his church, which is his body. Amongst the officers of the church, we have this emphasis deacons are to care for the physical needs of Christ's people, whereas elders are to take special care of people as it pertains to their spiritual needs, their soul. We will certainly experience trials and tribulations in this life, 
And this is all according to the providence of God. Sometimes we will suffer physically. Sometimes we will suffer spiritually. But within the church, Christ's care and concern for His people should be manifest, particularly through these two offices, as the deacons care for people physically and the elders spiritually, and as they work in cooperation with one another. For after all, though we are made up of body and soul, we are, we are unified as individual people, are we not? Just consider this, when Christ returns on the last day, how will He bring us home? He will bring us home as whole persons, body and soul. Do not forget it. Christ did not just come to save your soul. He came to save you as a person, body and soul, and He will raise your body up on the last day for all eternity. And when Christ taught us how to pray, He did not instruct us only to pray for spiritual things. Yes, it is true, He called us to pray for uh, the glory of God, for the furtherance of God's kingdom. He called us to ask for forgiveness of sin. He called us to pray that we would keep His will as the angels do in heaven. All of that, yes, is spiritual. But did He not also instruct us saying, pray like this, give us this day our daily bread. God is concerned to meet and to preserve us also physically. And again, this is reflected within the offices of Christ's church. It is no wonder then that within His church He has ordained two offices, elder and deacon, which correspond to the two parts of man, body and soul. Let us give thanks therefore to Christ for the provision that He has made for us. The spiritual and physical care was present even in the earliest days of the church, brothers and sisters. I want you to, I want to listen to this very familiar passage in Acts 2.42 and following. Uh, it, it's kind of a model text for us. This is what the church ought to be like. We read there that, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the church, they gathered together on the Lord's day. They heard the word. They prayed together. They took communion. They did all of these things. They had fellowship one, with one another. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together. And listen to this. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and, 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 and belongings. And they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is Acts 2, 42 through 47. So do you see how at the various earliest point of the church, the church was doing well in this regard. When there were physical needs within the church, what did the believers do? They actually sold their possessions. They brought the proceeds to the apostles to be distributed to those who were in need. No, this is not communism, as some will say. Why is it not communism? Because it's voluntary. That's why. No one is taking these things from the, the, the church, from the Christians. But they are voluntarily offering to, to sell possessions, to bring proceeds. But whose feet are they laying them at? They're laying them at here at, in Acts 2.42 and following the feet of the apostles. By Acts 6, we see that things are going wrong in this regard. Favoritism is being shown to the Jewish widows instead of the Gentiles. The office of deacon is therefore created to do this work, to take the proceeds of, of, of the church that are brought uh, to meet physical needs and to distribute them justly. In the very earliest days of the church, we see that the church had concern for the needy in their midst. Secondly, will you give honor to the deacons who serve in your midst? I hope that you will. I think we have been growing progressively in our understanding of the office of deacon here. Will you give honor to them for the work that they do? 
At the end of this ordination ceremony to take place later in the service, and after certain questions have been asked of the two men being ordained, I will ask you a question. I will say to you, do you, the members of this church, acknowledge and receive these brothers as deacons? And do you promise to yield to them all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which their office, according to the Word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles them? And I hope that at that point you will be willing to say wholeheartedly the words, I will. So please pray for the deacons and for their ministry. Give them the honor that they deserve as officers within this church. And thirdly, I will ask you this, and lastly, by way of application, are you yourselves eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Are you eager to do that? Are you willing to work hard to maintain the unity within the church? Are you striving to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love? This takes effort. Your, your actions, brothers and sisters, or your lack of action has an effect upon the entire body. And you need to realize that. Are you willing to serve one another? To give of your resources to meet needs, to use the particular gifts that God has given to you for the building up of the body of Christ. The elders and deacons have particular roles to play, but there is the responsibility of every member of the church to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are thankful for how you have cared for us in Christ Jesus. All of our needs are met in Him. We thank You that He has atoned for our sins if we have faith in Christ. Indeed, this is our greatest need. Uh, He has provided for us life eternal. He has reunited us to You, God the Father. And we are forever grateful for that. But we are also thankful that You, Father, uh, meet our needs in Christ Jesus, even as it pertains to our physical body. Uh, We thank You that You have invited us to say something like, Give us this day our daily bread. God, we ask that you would help us as a congregation to maintain ourselves. And as it pertains to this message today, Lord, help us to in particular uh, be mindful of the needs of those who are around us in this congregation, members of this body. May it never be that someone goes without when we could take action to relieve their suffering in some way. God, help us to love one another sincerely as you have loved us in Christ Jesus. It's in His name that we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen.